You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm joined with my two good friends. We were talking just a little bit ago how I really feel like these are my my, my two dudes. Like these are my these are my these are my guys who I just hang with. I'm like it's 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 just a, it's just a different world, and I and I can't even hug them. So that's Dr. Yep. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at the Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler. He's back, and I'm so excited. I always miss him uh, when he's not here, a doctor at the University of Colorado. Hey guys, welcome. It's so good to see both your faces right here, right now. Great to see you. Great to yeah, see you. It's great to see you. There's so much to chat about. I was thinking, I'm like, hey, life is crazy right now. I'll tell you about it. We'll tell you about it later. We're going to land the plane talking about, I think, uh, COVID-19 fatigue, because I am at my wit's end, gentlemen. And so we've got to talk about this, and we'll end with that. But I want to start with this review, because I think that's related. Because this review, I'm a weird, sappy guy, but also have little emotion. So take that paradox, right? So... I, I read this review and it got me teary-eyed. So I'm like, man, you're just being honest. So thank you, C. Bolden, right, for this. He gives it a five star. It says, if you're like me, you're depressed and saddened every day by the news about COVID. I'm like, dude, you just named a spade a spade. I've been trying to be all like happy-go-lucky. I'm like, I'm just depressed. Like I just, I want to I wanna hang with Steven and Mark at a bar. I want to give him a high five, a big hug, uh, a platonic kiss, whatever it is on, on the cheek, but something, right? So he says this, but this podcast doesn't, it doesn't have the effect on me. It's very informative. It gives me hope. And I really enjoy the questions that are asked and discussed. Thank you so much for this podcast, guys. I look forward to it every single week. So see Bolden, Thank you so much for that review. It inspired me to be honest. And so we're going to talk about COVID fatigue at the end of this episode because I'm feeling it. And I just went back to work. So there's a lot to talk about there in processing. So if you can leave a review, please do so. It's in the show notes. Also, if you can help support this, we have so much more to pay off and help to keep this going and automate so I can continue doing this, editing it. Now that I'm going back to my physical office, it's much more difficult. So you can do that at patreon.com slash pandemic podcast. As little as $5 a month could really help a lot or just a one-time donation at PayPal, Venmo, all in the show notes. Okay, I am dropping Stephen and Mark another episode and Living the Real today. It hasn't recorded yet. I'm so far behind. I'm excited about this one. Just let everybody know it's about why maintenance matters. So if you don't know, living the real follows a threefold structure: momentum, maintenance, and, and margin. And I haven't talked about that yet. And I think you'll be really surprised on how I've noticed in my own life that it's my lack of maintenance that that really destroys my capacity for happiness and joy. And I mean this not just like maintenance, like uh, gotta do the laundry. I mean like that maintenance of like. There's an issue in my life, guys. Even right now, there's an issue in my life that right now is like, if you can see this on Facebook Live, a little <laughs> snowball, right? It's a little <laughs> snowball. But what is, I don't maintain it. I'm By my very nature, guys, I'm an avoidant. And so that snowball starts going down the hill and becomes a big one, like for a good base of a snowman that my, my, my sons would love, and then <laughs> becomes out of control. And my lack of maintenance d- just rolls me over, right? So we're going to talk about this and how to fix this and do some first steps of allowing a life of maintenance to prevent that from happening. So check it out, livingthereal.com. Now let's get into the great stuff. We're about five or six minutes in. Maybe even more. Oh, no, under five. That's great. Let's talk about what's in the news. First thing, Stephen, let's just go back to you. We've been talking about this now, I think, third week in a row, maybe fourth. I'm pushing this, paper testing, anything new. And you said there's a website that maybe we should be, I should be on, and you should be on, and we should be on, uh, that I'll put in the show notes. So talk to, talk to us about that. Yeah, so just pulling it up right now. So the website is called Rapid Tests. 
org, And it was put together basically just by a well-meaning person who had read some of the research about these rapid tests. But he, they, they've since collaborated with, with the, my colleagues who are authors on the, on the paper um, and who have been really, really sort of promoting this idea that these frequent rapid um, at-home tests can go a long way towards detecting people when they're infectious, but before they've started showing symptoms. And, and by doing that, we can just reduce transmission a ton. And, and and I'm I'm absolutely convinced that that's our that's our best hope going into the fall to keep control of the of the pandemic, and so, again, the only thing in the way is 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 the regulatory issues. The technology exists, basically, just need, would need to ramp up production, and so essentially, the the news here is that after doing some more digging, it looks like states have the authority to basically authorize their own testing protocols without prior approval from the FDA. And so that means that, that the power to approve these sorts of things lies with state governors. And then also senators and congresspeople can also advocate to, for the FDA to, to approve these on a national scale. But you can write letters to your representatives, to your governors, sort of explaining this idea, advocating for it. And that sort of action can go a long way towards uh, actually getting things these things out into the community. So absolutely check out the website. We'll put it in the show notes. I think it's important. Great. So open the show notes. So please, if you get five minutes, just go there. I'll do it today. The templates are there. Just send a letter so we can hopefully get this approved. Yeah. I think it'll be a huge, a huge victory for us. And it can okay. be as simple as sending a text message. They have like, they have a way where you can literally just like send a text and it will like send a, send a letter for you. So <laughs> well, that's even, great. even if you're completely strapped for time, there's a way for you to contribute. So that's awesome. So do it. Yeah. Spend, the, spend the two minutes to the text message. Let's get this approved so we can have better testing and feel a little bit safer in our public environments. So, okay, next one. So big things I've been seeing. Vaccine is a big topic this past past week. It kind of goes ebbs and flows. Ventilation is a big topic we talked about last week. Airborne topic is big and popular. These are the big ones. So I want to hit vaccine right now. Stephen, I'm going to throw it right back to you. Mark, riff whenever you want to. So a couple <coughs> things. Little things, a little a little ominous response from Dr. Fauci about his says that there's the chance of the the vaccine not being highly effective. So I want to talk to you about that, Stephen. Like, what does that mean about that? I saw a sub-article saying America's obesity epidemic threatens effectiveness of any COVID vaccine. I wonder if that's related, right? So I want to sort of start with those two things, and then we'll talk about good old Russia. I want to go to, to see what's going on with there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that the, the word of caution that Dr. Fauci was, was mentioning basically just reflects the fact that we haven't done phase three trials yet with our vaccines. And those are the things that will really demonstrate clinical effectiveness on a large scale. And there are plenty of examples in history of treatments and vaccines that have shown a lot of promise, gotten through phase two, shown at least the potential for efficacy, get to phase three and kind of fizzle. So again, we're in a really good spot because we have a, a number of different vaccine candidates that are all sort of edging towards that phase three if they haven't already begun. But the the proof just isn't out there yet, and and yeah. we need it before we can sort of implement them in the population. So I think I think there is a danger in being sort of prematurely optimistic, and so I'm, I'm I am definitely optimistic, but there is there is a good measure of hesitation there because we just haven't seen the data yet. And once it's there, it'll be great. Right. But there's plenty of examples of these things not quite panning out like we hope. So okay, and I think um, th this is also a good just note. You guys have talked about this before, and we we've seen this risk of. A lack of evidence is not evidence, right? So this is a great, I think, just say, this is maybe Fauci just saying there is a lack of evidence, and so I'm not right. going to sit here. So I want to make that distinction clear yes. that there's still a lot of hope. It's just 
you're being a good scientist saying right now there's lack of evidence. So I'm, I'm holding my card then exactly. being hopeful. Right. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's great. I, yeah. Just to, just to underscore that lack of evidence is not evidence for the contrary. Right. And mm. yeah, I think that's a great, great point. Cause that, that has just come up a lot in lots of different ways. And as we're thinking about, you know, thinking about broader questions about how do we engage with science and kind of scientific discourse, it really does require us to be grounded in some of these really good principles of like, how do we deal with, how do we deal with the knowledge that we have and, and, and understand that robustly. So can I just go on a quick tangent? Cause you just said principles again for the second time in like three minutes, like how important principles are. Like, so if you haven't read the book guys and everyone listening, gals, everyone listen, if you haven't read this enormous book that is daunting and almost like depressing and how much, how much you have to do in life is principles by Ray Dalio. Have you read this book? Mm -mm. You haven't. It's incredible, but it's very long. He has a whole guideline of principles by which he lived his life and did uh, water, Oh, I forgot the name of the, his, his uh, watershed or I don't know, not watershed, but water something for his own business. And it's just great. And it just really encouraged me to realize, man, principles is the way to go. That's where we have to be to live out of those, to have a safe, to, to really, ha- it's like a good safety net. Anyway, tangent, love it. But I really have to follow those. Okay. So Stephen, you just mentioned how we're not in the third phase of trials. Let's talk about Russia. Now, all of a sudden, Russia is coming out this week talking about they've got the vaccine and they're going for it. They're, they're going to they're, they're administer it, I guess, just publicly, right? So what is going on? Like, I have a lot of just thoughts in my head and I'm just, I don't even know what to do. Like, what is going on here? And yeah, what is it? Yeah. Oh my goodness, there's a lot going on there. So I think there's, there's, there's a lot to break down. So you're right. So Russia has a vaccine candidate and they've, they've essentially not done phase three trials and are making it available to the entire population. Now, this is not just something that was only considered in Russia. There have been a lot of people even here in the United States who have advocated for basically skipping or shortening phase three trials basically saying that if, if a person wants to take that risk and to, to get the vaccine, they ought to be able to. So we can talk about that in a moment. But one of the other really interesting points of this that I think can kind of color it is one of the things that stood out to me is, is, is what Russia d- decided to call the vaccine, which is Sputnik 5, which is just really remarkable, right? It like brings to mind like the space race, right? And so they're yeah. sort of situating this race to develop a vaccine sort of in the same way that of like the space race, it's like turned it into like an international competition in a sense, which mm. definitely gives me pause because, you know, I, I, ideally a vaccine is something that will be shared and equitably distributed. It's like a very different thing than like yeah. flexing our, our technological muscles in a sense like this is, sure. it's, but it's, but it's interesting that it's really drawing upon those narratives and really trying to call to mind an era in our history I think that's very meaningful and I, I don't know what it means yet, <laughs> but, yeah. but I think it's important. So yeah, that's, I think that's, that's just an interesting point here. But so speaking about the phase three trials then for a moment and, and why I think it's very important to actually go through these phase three trials. So our, our structure of approving vaccines and treatments exists for a very good reason. And, and it's, it's basically this the structure that was produced to ensure that the things that we're administering to our population are safe and effective and that the benefits outweigh the risks. And in many ways, this is these, this series of trials is sort of the most streamlined, most efficient way of answering those questions that we have. We have a ton of practice putting things through clinical trials. We know how it works. And they're basically sort of the the formalization and institutionalization of our values and of the importance that we place on efficacy and safety and these sorts of things. 
So first of all, I mean, it's, it's not like, it's not like clinical trials are just like this, like bureaucracy that is holding things back. It's like absolutely fundamental towards sort of upholding what we collectively have as a culture sort of have, have collectively determined as, as, as an important thing. And, and like the way that we want to interact with medicine and with the, the, the medical things that we put into our bodies and that sort of thing. So so that's important. Phase three trials are there for a reason. But I think in addition to all of this, there's there's the notion of trust that's really at the root of a lot of this. Now, I think that one of the worst outcomes that could possibly happen is to have a coronavirus vaccine that is basically underproven, something that hasn't gone through phase three trials, and that turns out to be either ineffective or even worse dangerous and generates a higher risk than potentially the illness itself. We're at a point where there's a lot of hesitation around vaccination. There's a lot of resistance around people getting vaccines, even for the routine vaccines that, that people have been getting for a very long time. And that sort of like that sort of scenario would go such a long way towards obliterating trust in science, in medicine, and in in, in, in trust for vaccines that, that really we have a responsibility for those of us who do, as, as I do, very much ascribe to the fact that vaccines are one of the most valuable public health tools we have available, it's really important that we do our due diligence in making sure that they're safe and effective because we're, we're at a really vulnerable time in our history in terms of our relationship with science, our relationship with medicine, our relationship with all of these sort of structures that we've built. And we have to get it right. That's awesome. I have so many. Mark, do you have anything you want to chime in? I have tons of like thoughts spur, like just again, Mark, you mentioned principles, the very fact of like, if we bend on our principles in an already an environment, which we have a distrust, it just exacerbates everything. I mean, principles are really the guiding force by which to measure someone to say, can I trust this person? Do they keep in line with what they say? Or do we bend it for some other purpose? And if we do like Russia, then can we trust them in other things in our life? And so we just, let alone the safety of humanity and in, in our in, in, in our nation, but just the tr- the level of trust. So I'm thinking of that, how dangerous that is. I'm thinking, is, is it the measles? Or I don't know which one that when it first came out, it had a fun, like one of the labs didn't truly deactivate the, the vaccine and then totally infected like, you know, 50,000 kids or something, right? There was, think, uh, there was a polio vaccine polio. that, that that happened to and we early on it, there was one i think it was called it's called the cutter incident if i remember correctly that yeah uh, yeah one of the yeah it was an inactivated vaccine that wasn't act- adequately inactivated yeah i i agree i think i'm interested Stephen, to hear because i think this is important too so we've we've talked about two two very distinct things in the last you know 10 minutes uh, and i want to draw a distinction between those because on one hand you're advocating for us to have these paper tests put into circulation prior to approval by the FDA, right? And then on the other hand, we're talking about vaccines and the importance of going through FDA approval to the phase three trial. And I could see how those could be seen as contradictory recommendations. So I want to want to talk about why what's going on there? And what's the difference? Yeah. So you want to riff on that? And then I can add you know yeah i would i would love for you to add things as well so so that was that was absolutely one of the first thoughts that came to mind when when i realized that there was this issue potentially with approval of the paper tests and so there are there are really important distinctions here to be drawn so first of all it all has to do with basically basically the intent like what is this tool for 
So first of all, the, the, the paper tests themselves are not a treatment. They're not an intervention. They would be used as a surveillance tool. Now, the, the, the key distinction here, and, and actually the reason why they're being held up in FDA, tri- or basically the FDA approval process, is because these tests are not sensitive enough to be used as clinical tools for diagnosing individual people. And that's true. Like, that's, that's absolutely right. They're not sensitive enough to hold up to the same clinical standards as the PCR, the tests that we normally use to diagnose COVID. So they're not good clinical diagnostic tools. But the thing is that there's uh, basically the FDA doesn't have a separate route for approving surveillance tools, which is essentially what these things would be. So the idea is with, with, the, with the paper test, it would come back positive or negative. If it's positive, then you would have the option and ideally you would choose to self-isolate. But that's the biggest risk that you would run, essentially, is, is the potential to self-isolate. Whereas with a vaccine, of course, there's, you know, there's, there's everything like that, that can be a very dangerous thing if you don't get it right. So I think there's a lot more opportunity for vaccines and treatments to have adverse effects. And they're also being used as clinical tools rather than public health tools. So those are some of the distinctions that I draw, but I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on it, Mark, too. Yeah, you know, I think that's just it. And I think the question for me is how how do we, That's there's a lot of nuance there. And we've experienced, you know, time and again throughout this pandemic, a lot of difficulty in disseminating nuanced information. It's very hard <clears throat> to have a good soundbite about that uh, that gets heard, you know, with the degree of resolution that we need, um, because what you're talking about are two different kinds of information. You know, you have this epidemiologic information from surveillance testing that's really broad, that's not very specific necessarily, and it may or sensitive, it may miss cases that are clinically relevant, right, for the individual, but it would help us get back to school, for instance, or get back to work. Right. And so it has this really important society, positive societal impact, uh, but it's a distinct form of using information than it is than what I use in the clinic, for instance, you know, when I am encountering patients and trying to decide if they have a coronavirus infection or if they're pneumonias because of something else. And so I think the question in my mind is, you know, this is this is one instance of the much broader issue is about how do we disseminate this kind of scientific knowledge and that kind of nuanced information so that it becomes actionable. And I think that's, that's, that's tough. So it's something I think it's worth us thinking about, you know, and, and, of, and everybody in our audience too, as uh, we're engaging with other people, you know, in our lives. Yep. yep. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. I think that's, yeah. that's a really key point here. Yeah. And I think, and, yeah. Oh yeah. Go ahead, Matt. No, you keep going. Just, just again, it's just interesting to me as we're attending to the narratives that we tell about science, the geopolitical narratives that are being overlaid on this and questions about China and Chinese dominance. And now there's Russia and, you know, technologic, you know, these, these narratives of technologic progress and of, of competition and things like that. It's just how quickly all of that gets overlaid. And it's very difficult, I think, to keep our categories, you know, to keep our distinctions distinct as we're talking about things. It's so easy to begin a conversation in one place and move very quickly. Like I, it's, I feel like it's very easy to start to have a conversation about uh, masks or about a vaccine and the efficacy of those and to end talking about fears about Russian interference in American politics. Like, like we, we move from one to the other so quickly and so fluidly. And it's not that they're not interrelated, 
but there is sort of a discipline, I think, in in keeping our categories distinct and really making sure that we're understanding what it is that we're talking about and not mixing things kind of, you know, all over the place, because then we get overwhelmed by this, the bigness, you know, of what, of what it is. And in, instead of generating better understanding, you know, an understanding of each other and of the science step by step, we end up just getting like overwhelmed. Yeah. That's great. I mean, to me and my, somewhat moderate philosophical background. I think about these discussions and you see these two particular cases and you know, there's frameworks of like what's considered a good act, you know, what, what's considered actually good to do. And, you know, there's a framework of act intention and circumstances of like wrestling through this of like, what's the act it's, you know, you know, expediting FDA approval for the, for the intention, for the intention to actually be able to provide testing to see what, you know, who is being tested positive quicker. So we can, we can quarantine them. What are the circumstances, right? Well, the circumstances could be a myriad of circumstances. Same thing for this vaccine. What's the act? Well, it's, 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 it's a, going beyond the steps to approve same kind of thing, a vaccine. What's the intention? Well, I'm not quite sure I know what the intention is right now. So I, I can't, I can't vouch for Russia and what their really intention is. Is it to cure or is it to win? It seems like by the way they named, it could be win. And then what's the circumstances, right? The circumstances could be you get a vaccine that doesn't have good efficacy and kills a bunch of people. We don't know, right? There's the circumstances. And then of course, probably what you're familiar with is the ancient philosophical double of principle of double effect, if people have ever heard this, look it up. It's like, it's Aristotelian. It's almost, it, it, it's the Socratic times. And it's, it's been carrying us forward for, for millennia and helping us to guide difficult situations. And it's a comp, it's, it's really not, it's, it's a complicated, brilliant discovery of philosophers, but they have two things. Two of the four principles I, I, I call to mind is number one, it has to be the last recourse, right? There could be no other recourse. And then second, that this, the cure can't be worse than the, 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 the effect, right? And so that, that's why these are fundamentally different. I mean, when you talk about the negative effect of a paper test is fundamentally different than, than the negative consequence of a vaccine of, of chemicals being put into your body. There are two fundamentally different questions to be asked, right? So, mm-hmm. okay, good discussion. Sorry, I went to the clouds there, but that was really awesome for the last moment, but it's really good stuff to talk about. These are the real issues and I get it. I start talking about something and then I'm talking about something entirely different in five minutes. And I, and I'm wondering how I got there, uh, you know, so let's continue on. Great discussion. Next big one. we want to talk about, I saw this in the news, Steven, you can start with this. Do some people have protection against the coronavirus? I saw this. I think it's referring to this article is really referring to this idea of maybe other coronaviruses in our past, helping us to build immunity. What's going on with that? Yeah, so there's, there's been a lot of basically trying to grapple with why there can be such a wide range of clinical severity of COVID. And there's also epidemiological evidence. And well, yeah, I'll start there. There's epidemiological evidence that, that seems to suggest that some of the coronaviruses that circulate and cause the common cold can in fact induce some amount of immunity against each other. That's actually related to some of the work that we did back at the back in April. And, and so there's, there's epidemiological evidence. There's, it just kind of makes sense. A lot of related pathogens induce some amount of cross immunity against each other. This, this happens with flu too. And so the question really is, you know, do the common cold coronaviruses give you any sort of protection against either infection with or severe clinical outcomes from COVID to not keep anyone in suspense? The answer is that we still don't know, but, but essentially uh, what we've, what various scientists have been doing in the meantime is, is trying to test this hypothesis to say, 
is it still plausible or is it absolutely not at all? And so one of the studies that came out recently was asking this question and basically verified one step in the process saying like, yeah, it's still plausible, although it still is a long shot from from actually conclusively saying that there, that there is this cross immunity in play. So the idea is that there's there's a couple different branches of your immune system, and one of them is, is T cells, which basically help to produce your, your immune response to an infection. Uh, and they basically show that the T cells that you develop through a natural infection with, with one of the common cold coronaviruses basically overlap with the same type of T cells that you produce in response to SARS-CoV-2, and that they're close enough that, in theory, one might give you some degree of protection against another. But this was all sort of microbiological stuff that was done. And the the only way that we could answer this question is by looking either in the epidemiological data, if if we could see which communities and populations had been infected with one of these common cold coronaviruses, and if they differed in their outcomes for SARS-CoV-2, or if you actually do some kind of direct, uh, what we call a challenge study, when you essentially would find someone who's been infected with with one of the common cold coronaviruses and, and intentionally expose them to SARS-CoV-2 to see whether their outcomes changed. Both of those are very difficult to do. One, because we haven't been collecting data on the common cold coronaviruses because they haven't mattered that much until now. <laughs> and because there are all sorts of ethical and logistical ramifications towards the challenge studies. So I think we're a long way off from actually finding an answer because both of those are really difficult to, to, to do. But, but I think that's where we sit right now. Mark, anything on your end? Yeah, so I think this is really interesting to me from kind of an immunology perspective, right? And thinking about how does our immune system work? Because the fundamental question at play here is both with vaccines and immunity and therapeutics are what are the ways that we can help our bodies to address an infection, either by preventing the infection from taking hold. You know, I think first first step is preventing pathogens from entering the body, then pre preventing the pathogen from taking hold. And then if it has, what do you do to treat it? And so there's kind of those, you know, and, we, and we've talked, you know, in previous episodes a little bit about the various ways that we can do that. And it may be worth, you know, at some point we could do just a deeper dive and talk a little bit about immunology, because I think it's interesting and in having a, I think it's also empowering to have an understanding a little bit about what's going on um, at a more cellular level, because that helps us just to kind of grapple with all of the different things that we've, we've been seeing, you know, going on. What Stephen is talking about, I think, is is important. So there's, we have different parts of the, there's kind of the passive immunity that we have different, you know, parts, parts of our immune system that don't have the kind of memory that this active immunity does. And so when we think about uh, B and T cells, which he was talking about T cells in particular, that's something that the body is exposed to antigens and then it learns about them. And it remembers, there's a, a type of kind of cellular memory. And we're using that when we vaccinate, we're using the body's ability to do that and and exposing it to antigens and then making it so that when the body sees that again, you know, it's exposed to it from the environment, it's already has that cellular memory and it already has a leg up in the response because of that. And, you know, we've talked a lot about antibody production and then the T cells just, we can go into, I think we can go into a little deeper dive maybe some other time, but the difference between and there, there is a difference between antibody production and T cells. And so the, the antibodies are produced by B cells. They are helpful, particularly with 
extracellular pathogens often. And so it like recognizes things that are outside of the cells and the T cells often help more with the intracellular. So once the virus actually gets in to the body, it can mark the cells for destruction. And so they go and there's, there's ways that the T cells produce things called cytokines that ramp up the immune response. I got a, I got a question. So one of the things we've talked a little bit about inflammation and anti-inflammatories like dexamethasone, you know, for instance, as ways of treating coronavirus once it takes hold. And that's, again, that's working in this pathway. So once you start to get a lot of inflammation um, and a lot of those cytokines, those themselves can actually do damage to parts of the body um, like the lungs. Okay. So I have a question and this is, you just talked about immunity and response. And so we have a vaccine and we have natural immunity. You get infected with coronavirus, you get a natural immunity and it lasts for X amount of time. And now the vaccine comes up and there's a vaccine and you get immunity for X amount of time. Has there been studies? Is there any kind of revelation of, is there a greater advantage from being naturally immune versus being artificially yeah. through a vaccine? So I think in some ways there's, you have to take it case by case. So you have to take it vaccine by vaccine in terms of the duration of the effect. One thing that's worth knowing is that different vaccines work in different ways. So some of the vaccines are actually inactivated or weakened viruses themselves and you get the whole whole viral particle, and that induces an immune response. Others use just parts of the virus, maybe proteins or something like that, that are presented to the T cells. And so it's not necessarily the whole virus that you get. Others are killed viruses. So some are weakened viruses, some are killed viruses. And depending on the formulation and on the virus and on the body's response to the individual pathogen, you get a variable response. You know, some vaccines, you need multiple boosters, and then you get lifetime immunity after a few boosters. Some vaccines, you only need to get once. Other vaccines, like the flu vaccine, you get every year because the way the flu virus mutates can evade our immunity. And so we kind of get, you know, have to get that every year. So it's very variable based on what you're getting you know, immunized to. But I think at the heart of that question, there's this other, there's another question that's, that's a little bit slippery and that's, you know, isn't it better to do this the natural way, right? Isn't there, so there's, there's a tendency or a preference for, you know, in certain ways, like, wasn't it, it's almost as if you're saying like, there's, you know, there's this organic method and the, the GMO method, right? That there's like that, you know, but it's artificial, you know, it's, it's made (laughs) in a lab. Doesn't that mean it's bad? And, and I think that is a lot harder mm-hmm. because what that does is, so that appeals, so that's something that you hear sometimes in conversations about vaccines that, that people will say, well, I, we, what we want is herd immunity. We want, you know, we want our communities to be strong because they get these and they, we get natural immunity as opposed to vaccines, which somehow, you know, there's this perception that that somehow weakens the, the communal response to pathogens or whatever. And really what you're doing is you're operating on different levels of discourse. So you're, you're operating on this level of, of kind of a preference for the natural approach, right? Whatever the natural approach might be construed as, you know, as opposed to, you know, what, it, what's actually going on at a cellular level and are these things actually, you know, fundamentally different because fundamentally what vaccines are is a way of creating herd immunity without the, as high of a risk of mortality because you're, and that's, you know, that's what you're going for is you're going for a herd immunity approach, but you also don't want, you know, people to be dying of these diseases. And, and that's why vaccines were initially created. And, 
And so that I think is complicated because it just yeah. taps into so many, so many emotional arguments, right? So many, so many things that, that, that people have kind of preconceived feelings about what's better, you know, questions of value, like, well, it's better if it's natural or it's better if it's whatever. And I think that it's so hard. It's so hard. And I, and the first step in having conversations about that though, I think is, is listening and understanding and listening really hard for those sorts of things, because there's a legitimacy, you know, there's a legitimacy to that concern of, you know, shouldn't we be doing things in a way that's more natural? You know, I think that there's, I don't think, I think so often in medicine, it can be easy for us to discount that very quickly. And I, I do feel that a lot of the difficulty and discourse that we have right now around science, around vaccines, around masks, around whatever is the fruit of decades of certain types of dismissal or of ridicule um, of certain viewpoints that then allows those viewpoints to get really encrusted and embattled and and resistant to yeah. um, conversation that comes from the outside. And I really think, you know, medicine has to look at itself very hard into the ways that it's contributed to the suspicion that people have you know, of things like vaccine and stuff, because of the way that often, you know, it's very hard for us to listen hard enough to hear those underlying concerns. We have a lot, it's an uphill, it's an uphill battle right now, you know, and, and I think that, but, but any time that we ridicule or mock or demean is, is so unhelpful. And really, I think, you know, we've got to listen for the yeah. good, the, the good concern that's behind the question, even if the question itself is something that's like, could be frustrating or could be confusing. Like, I don't understand why somebody could be so hesitant to, you know, do this very simple intervention. So you've got to hear what's underneath that uh, first. Probably, I don't know if you said this, Mark, or as well, but I'm reading this and that is like, like the best way is to engage in conversation so that when you respond back to them or reflect back to them, what, what they said their response is, wow, you said it better than me. If you can do that, then you pretty much won the right to be able to enter into discourse, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. the goal. So you can actually reframe what they're trying to say in a way that actually is better. Then, you know, you're, yeah. then, they, then they know that you're trying your best to be able to understand their world and not to boil it down or oversimplify it to a caricature and then mm -hmm. beat down the caricature, right? Exactly, yeah. Ideally, you represent it in a way that is recognizable and, and true, to them. And then if this goal is to seek change, it's to begin to have that conversation from those premises, right? So from, from those, the, the premises that they would acknowledge, you know, where is the inconsistency or where's, you know, where's the thing that you, the a value that you have to add on top of that. And I think that's, that's just the process, but it's super tough. I could, I could see you going to your wife and being in a difficult, difficult situation. Like, okay, honey. So your premise one was now you are definitely not sleeping in the same bed right now. Yeah, that's that a, night. So just, yeah. just a little F, a little, a little, a little PSA to all you people who are married and totally conceptual. Totally makes sense. You might want to reframe it in the context of love. So great, great work. I love it. I love it. I love it, Mark. So again, principle. If your principle is natural is better, the best way is always, it's great to have principles, but always measure and, and constantly compare it to other realities. Okay. Two more things before we get in. I want to do this quick. I think we can do this. America's window of opportunity to beat uh, back COVID-19 is closing. Stephen, what on earth is there any window even open right now 
And, 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 and it, is there any truth to this or is it just hype? Yeah. So I think there is, there is some potentially some truth to it. I mean, the fact is we don't, we don't know what's going to happen this fall, but again, history suggests that pandemics of respiratory pathogens tend to ramp up in the fall. And regardless of whether or not COVID transmission really ramps up in a big way in the fall, it is going to overlap with flu season, which will make dealing with COVID more difficult. So I think that's what they're referring to with this window of opportunity is that we do still have enough time before flu season really gets ramped up and before the sort of the transmission sort of scenarios are right for COVID really start ramping up again as well, that we still have time potentially with a lot of diligence and a lot of effort to bring cases back down to a much lower level such that we could use other interventions, contact tracing, things like that to more effectively control sort of like flare-ups in different places. But I think that's about it. I, I don't know if it will happen. Yeah. I, don't, I don't anticipate an awful yeah. lot in terms of our response as a whole society changing much in the next couple of months. I, I would be very open to being surprised, but, but I think that's what they're getting at. I mean, I think that feeds that feeds right into our question about in that deeper dive topic yeah. of of fatigue, and yeah, I think you're exactly right. I I feel it. Mm-hmm. I've seen it a lot, and there's a certain way in which we have lost patience with some of the social distancing, you know, recommendations. And I think that in certain ways that, you know, and not to paint a picture of doom and gloom either, I think we know a lot more than we did back in March. And I think there are certain things that we can do a lot more safely and maybe avoids some of the large scale lockdowns that we did then when we just didn't know. But that fatigue seems to be sort of the operative thing in our, res- our response over the next couple of months. I- I'd be interested, I don't know, to hear a little bit about what you guys have been up to and thinking and feeling related to that. I, have, I definitely have some thoughts. Well, I think for me, I just went back to work, so I think last week, and I have to apologize to all our listeners. I'm a complete ignorant fool on a whole other level because when I actually went to work, it's one thing in your mind, it's like in a cerebral method to like, it's complicated, it's okay. But then actually deal with the complications of like, what are you going to do? How many people are you going to invite? How are you going to invite them? How are you going to keep them distance? Every day I'm so exhausted and overwhelmed in a whole other level of trying to deal with the next steps of a business in light of the complexities. And on top of that, I find some consolation and a little bit frustration that it seems as if the rest of the country is the same. So I find consolation that like, we're not the only ones in our business at, in Boulder that are struggling with next steps forward and how to actually organize chaos. Because when I try to go research and try to figure out what should we be doing? How many people should we be having outside? I can't find a consistent answer even in the city of Boulder, uh, or at least their documents are not updated. There's multiple documents and I'm trying to figure out which one is, which one is the most valid one, which continues to complicate things. So I'm at a whole other level of fatigue. And then I have a huge honesty thing I have to provide to everyone. And that is in my disc profile, I'm a high C. If you know what that means, I'm a high compliance. So I like, I love compliance and I'm also have a tendency to be more compliant, which also, by the way, makes me passive aggressive sometimes because I don't voice myself. So that's a whole therapy session. We can bring my sister back on for that. Um, but, but what am I getting at? It's hard for me, guys. It's easy to sit here to talk to you guys and talk to everybody and say, wear your mask, do this. But when everybody is not doing it around me, I want to take off my mask because I'm a high compliance. I don't like being the person who's like, like, like that th- just plows through, even though here I have my, this ep- this podcast with you guys knowing what's right. And then I feel like an utter hypocrite when I follow the herd who's also fatigued. 
And I want them to see my lips and watch me actually say something, right? And not have my glasses fog up every time I breathe out so I can see, right? But, but yet, it's funny. I'm like, I'm talking about that, but the consequence is much greater for me not to wear my mask than having a slightly fogged glasses. But, but that fatigues me mentally because I'm a high compliance. So I have to put so much energy to even try to resist mm-hmm. that that I'm exhausted mm-hmm. after the first 30 minutes of my morning just with yeah. that. I hear you. I mean, I hear you. And there's, there's this desire to have, I think for everybody to be, to have the integrity of like what you do and what you say align. And I think that, you know, for me in this, I think that's been, it's just very much at play, you know, that like I'm treating patients who have COVID, you know, we chat every week about COVID. We're steeped in kind of the, what, what we should do. And, and there's just this, it's, but it's hard. It's often really hard when you're in a scenario, you know, and you're, you see friends or you're back to work and in, in like, how do you do it in a way that's, that's charitable, but, it, but ultimately it's to me a question of, you know, integrity, right. Of like the, that what you believe and what you do are in alignment. And, and I think that that's, it is, it's totally exhausting. You know, I really long for like the kind of social conventions that, you know, that we often like chafe against that we're like, Oh, it's so stuffy, you know? And it's like, like when you go, whatever, like you go, you go to a wedding and you wear a tie off, you know, or like the social convention about like, we drive on the right side of the road and, you know, and, yeah. or whatever, like these, these things that, we don't even think about, you know, how nice it would be if we had a few of those in this yeah. time and not had to negotiate everything, right? Like it's, there's just a convention around how many people are in a room. There's just a convention around, you know, and I, and it, it's hard because people just don't like that, you know, and I don't like certain conventions either. You know, I think I can, I can sympathize with that, but it sure does bypass a lot of the, there's just a huge amount of cognitive energy that goes into this constant negotiation and it's super exhausting. Steven. Yeah. I, I mean, I resonate with all of that. It's definitely, yeah, I miss, I miss seeing people's faces a lot and I miss the sorts of like social interactions that you can have that are, that are very, like casual, just sort of like being in a space with other people. I think that there's something that, that that offers that just sort of staves off some of the isolation that you can feel. And also in addition to those things, so speaking about fatigue, I think that one of the things that, that has been especially fatiguing working in public health is sort of this very consistent sort of undercurrent of messages that, that almost that we're glad this is happening in a way that this is like good for our bottom line in some sense, or that, or that the, the reason we're in this is to like make a profit somehow, or like there's, there's sort of always these like notions of like ulterior motives or like, like, yeah, just like profiteering, like, like how, how could you actually, actually be committed to wanting this pandemic to be over and, and, and helping people not, die ideally you know like like there must be something else there must be something in it for you and early on i think it was very easy for me to just sort of brush that aside and be like well you know you're just going to get that sometimes but i think getting that very consistently for months even though it's not the dominant thing i mean i'm definitely not saying that that's like the only thing there's been a lot of support a lot of you know a, a lot of real yeah real support from all sorts of different angles but there's definitely that undercurrent that 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 has worn certainly on me and on many of my colleagues, I think, in public health. And that's been really hard. So I think that's something that we're just kind of trying to dig out of, especially as we're gearing up for what might be a more active fall. Steve, like I, of all things to put a profession in, this is not one to gamble 
on making money on a <laughs> pandemic. I mean, there there are much safer professions where I think you could the the chances of winning big yeah. are way better. Yeah, even being a teacher yeah. somehow. But like, and I don't see the topic of teachers. I just I just think teachers are underpaid. Yeah. So way underpaid. So yeah, it's, yeah. I there's no way on God's green earth I could ever imagine any infectious disease epidemiologist saying, I think I'm going to score big on this one, right? You yeah. just happen to fall into it. But I'm just so thankful for you, Stephen. Thanks. Well, great, man. The last thing I want to end on is this. I saw this article, we're getting long, but it was really, I thought it was helpful. It was psychologists identify three mindsets that protect against COVID stress. And we've kind of talked about the mindsets already, my mindset of what's going on. And I want to read these. I'll put them in the show notes and I want everyone who's listening to identify where they're at and how they can move into one that actually provides less stress. And I'm, I'm going to challenge myself to fall into one of these as well. The first one is a threat mindset. You can probably already assume where this is going. According to the researchers, it refers to a belief that one does not have sufficient personal resources to deal with the current events and therefore perceives oneself as being in danger of harm or loss. Not surprisingly, the researchers found this mindset to have higher levels of stress. Number two, a challenge mindset. On the other hand, describes the belief that one has sufficient resources to deal with difficult events that can, quote, achieve personal gains or growth when mobilizing physical or psychological energy, right? The researchers found this to have a higher sense of satisfaction. That's kind of as Mark and Steve and I talk about asking the question, like, where is the opportunity? Where is the gift in this? That kind of mindset. Centrality mindset refers to the belief that one perceives a current event as consequential to one's life and important to one's personal well-being, in other words, this describes a recognition of the cause and effect nature of the pandemic, that the outbreak has caused school and business closures, quarantines, and a major restructuring of one's daily life. Much like the threat mindset described above, the researchers found this mindset is associated with higher levels of stress. Contr- next one, a controllable by, by self mindset refers to the belief, and this is where we're hitting to, the fatigue of this, refers to the belief that the pandemic, to some degree, is controllable through one's own choices and actions, right? Wearing a mask, washing your hands, right? People who adopt this mindset, for instance, are more likely to believe that prevention measures such as wearing a mask, washing hands frequently, and taking good care of oneself are effective at preventing the virus of spreading. Of course, by even believing this, you have a higher level of satisfaction and well-being. Two more, a controllable by others mindset refers to the belief that an individual can rely on other people to help manage a given stressor. Now take that and smoke it. There's a good there's a good sense of this, right? Where they're saying that in the case of COVID nineteen, this might entail a belief that a government, community, or even spiritual entity is able to effectively manage and control the course of the pandemic. Now that can flop either way, right? So I mean when we look at the government and, and their inability to, at times to be able to feel like they're protecting us can really hurt this mindset, right? Versus and then last but not least, the uncontrollable mindset. Adopt the view that nothing can stop or prevent the pandemic from spreading. Clearly, I don't need the rest, rest of this. That has the highest level of stress. So you're just a victim. Getting out of the victim mentality, encouraging to ask the question, like, where's the gift? Where's the opportunity? What can I do today, me, Matt, to stop being a high C, wear my flipping mask in front of 40 people who aren't wearing masks and are mocking and be the one dude wearing the mask and being okay with it, right? And believe that I'm doing my small part. I hope you guys are doing the same thing. We'll end there. I hope you have an awesome, wonderful week. We will see you next week, either Monday or Wednesday. I have no idea because life is chaotic. (laughs) Take care. Uh, If you can leave a review, please do. If you can support us financially, we greatly need it. 
patreon.com slash pandemic podcast and Venmo and PayPal all in the show notes. Take care. We'll see you next week.